Uh, please be seated. Thanks, Shay. Good morning, everybody. Doing good today? Make it in here? A lot of ash out there, huh? Well, my name is Kyle Bateson, and um, the one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be able to preach to you today. If you don't have a Bible open uh, for that reading, you're going to want to grab one of the ones around you or still your neighbors because you really want to see what is in this text here today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20, which is on page 929. So get a Bible and open up there. Um, If you're new to this church, if you're a guest with us, maybe you're somebody who you're investigating God or Christianity. Maybe you have a lot of doubts. Maybe you got dragged here with a friend. You are welcome here. And uh, I understand that coming to a new place can be very intimidating, let alone uh, coming to a church. And I just want you to know from the pastors to you, you are welcome here. Uh, It might be weird to see people singing and like raising their hands. What is not happening, this is not a concert. We're not like raising our hands because the band feels insecure and we need to make them feel better about themselves or anything. We are raising our hands because raising your hands is a sign of giving somebody else glory. And what we're raising our hands to is God. And we're giving him the glory because all of life is about him. And uh, you might hear people say amen and think that's weird. It just means yes, we agree. Yes, indeed is what it means. And you might hear people say things like hallelujah. It just means praise God. So feel free to say that stuff as we're going, as, you, as these truth hits your heart, because this sermon is not just a, a, a monologue, it's a dialogue. We're, we're dialoguing together, we're praising God together. Amen, church? All right, let's do it. Acts 20. We've been going through the book of Acts for several weeks now, and the book of Acts is about revival. Revival just simply means awakening to the presence of God, to the beauty of God, and we need a revival. Amen? Uh, I read a... Barna Research uh, put out a, uh, a thing, that, a survey, and they said that, it was about a month ago, and they said that uh, on the scale of which cities were the least churched in America, guess where Reno ended up? Reno Sparks. Number two. Second most unchurched place in the United States. Our home. I told my son the other day, we were having a conversation, and I told him that out of all of, if he had 100 friends, only four of them would know Jesus. And he said, only four? Yeah, only four. We live in a place that does not know God, and we have this divine responsibility to introduce people to him. And when that happens, we believe that there are many in this city that God wants to bring to himself. But what it is going to take is it's going to take leadership amongst all of us. If you become a Christian, in a sense, you are a leader because your job is to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, who makes other followers of Jesus. Disciples making disciples. So you may not regard yourself as a leader, but in a sense, we all have this divine responsibility to lead because our job is to point to the glory of God. But it's going to take resolve. And that's what this last section of the book of Acts is called. Is We're calling it Revival and Resolve because it's, it follows the journey, the, the final journeys of the Apostle Paul and his resiliency to preach the gospel to the end of the world. And th- this is symbolized by an anchor. An anchor in ancient tradition is a symbol of being rooted in somebody stronger than yourself. And as Christians, we're anchored in God. It's also an ancient symbol of the Trinity of God. And I love the picture that we have here, if you can see it behind me. It's an anchor, and it's cutting a snake's head off. That's just, that's bad. That's awesome. Because as Christians, as the church is rooted in God, the works of the devil are just nonsense. They're defeated. They're pushed back. 
As the light spreads, the darkness flees. But it will require us to be resolved in our leadership. You see, we live in an age of opinion bombings. Where everybody's wanting to throw out their opinions. They want to fly over and speak their truths. But nobody wants to get involved and get their hands dirty and actually lead. We live in an age of sloganeering. Where we're all saying things that sound good, but nobody is caring for souls. And what we will see, we will see our city change when we are resolved to lead with real presence, with courageous truth, and with humility. And that's what we see Paul doing here. And he's going to show us three different things about how and why he's resolved to lead as he's continuing his journey. Okay, so we're going to go through three points. The first point is this is that Paul is resolved to lead as one who is consumed by God and his continual work. He's tenaciously consumed by God and his continual work. So look at Acts 20, verse 1. The chapters are the uh, big numbers. The verses are the little numbers. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. So here's what's going on. Let's put the map up there. It says, after the uproar ceased. You'd be like, what uproar? Well, that's in chapter 9. You've got to read, or 19. You've got to read chapter 19 to understand what it's saying. But right now, Paul, he's, this is his third missionary journey, and he's in the city of Ephesus. And chapter 19 just talks about how he spent almost three years there ministering, sharing the gospel. And so many people became Christians that they started getting rid of their idols and burning their witchcraft books. And it, the, the economy of Ephesus was changed. The idol makers were going out of business. And so they caused an uproar and a riot, and they wanted to capture Paul and kill him. And Paul then decides to leave after the uproar calms down. He decides to leave, and he continues on his missionary journey. But here's what I want you to get. If I was in a city preaching the gospel, and there was a huge uproar, and they all wanted to kill me, I'd probably be like, well, I think I did good, you know? Let's go back home. (laughs) But Paul was tenacious in his belief that God still had work to do. And so therefore, he continued his journey. He didn't give up. And he continued on. Now, what I want you to see is as he goes around, he goes up to all these different cities. And the important thing about those cities is on the second missionary journey, he had already planted churches in those cities. And so he's visiting them again. And I want you to catch something there. Paul didn't just want to roll up into a city, drop gospel bombs, let something happen, and then leave and never return again. He truly cared about those people. He was truly resolved to lead. He didn't want to speak at people. He wanted to speak to them. And he didn't just want them to hear truth. He wanted to see truth form their lives. And so he goes to those other cities to check up on them. Because he believed that God was working amongst them. He was resolved to lead them. He really, truly cared. And so verses 2 through 6 talk about how he goes on those, to those cities and visits them and then how he starts to make his way back. And then in verse 7, we see he lands in the city on his way back, if you follow the purple line, in the city of Troas, which Troas is in modern day northern Turkey. It would be like the Seattle of Turkey. He's in Seattle of Turkey right now. And that's where we pick up in verse 7. And look at how Paul is consumed with God. That's what I want you to see in this next section. It says, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when they were gathered together to break bread, so they were gathered like this to break bread, which is participating in communion and the teaching and preaching of his word. So Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until when? Midnight. 
You guys cannot complain about long sermons here, okay? (laughs) Paul preached until midnight. And they wanted to hear it. He just went on and on and on. I like how Luke, the author of this book, highlights. He says he prolonged his speech. It's likely that Paul was preaching the word. And then he was probably answering questions. He was probably telling stories of what God had done in all the different cities. He was giving glory to God. And he could, because he was a man consumed with God and his continual work, he could go on and on and on about God until midnight. And it says in verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. (laughs) Still longer. He keeps going. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Oh, man. This guy, Eutychus, this high school kid, is hearing Paul, and he starts to fall asleep. And he goes up to, he's sitting on the window, he's just maybe leaning against the window and falls asleep. And Paul is just preaching on and on. And then that kid falls out the window and dies. Paul literally preached somebody to death. (laughs) He killed a guy by his preaching. And then Paul goes down. Look at what it says after that. It says in verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him up in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten it, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. They were not a little comforted because he was raised from the dead. So here's the scene. Paul is preaching. This kid falls asleep, goes down and dies. Paul's like, don't worry, I got this. Jesus resurrected from the dead. He gave me power to do miracles. And he goes down, he picks him up, and he becomes alive again. And then what does Paul do? He goes back up, serves communion, and then preaches some more until the morning. <laughs> Paul is a man consumed by the power and work of God. Think about for a moment the providence of God in this situation. Um, I'm sure as Paul was going on and on, testifying to what God has done, testifying to the scripture, there was people there being like, yeah, I believe it. I'm just not sure I believe those miracles. I'm just not sure I believe this or Jesus raised from the dead. I'm just not sure that Jesus' power in the resurrection has any implication in our daily lives. I'm sure there were doubters in there. And then all of a sudden in God's providence, this kid falls asleep and he hits the ground and he dies and Paul goes down and he raises him from the dead, testifying that the power of the resurrection is legitimate, that the work of God is real and that he is amongst us. That woke everybody up. From that point on, nobody was falling asleep, I'm sure. Because God is amongst his people and he's still at work. And Paul was consumed. Um, I love what Eugene Peterson says in his autobiography regarding the book of Acts. Eugene Peterson is an old pastor. He's in his late 80s, and he wrote a story about how he became a pastor. And he said early on he preached the book of Acts, and he says the problem is, is the church doesn't believe that God is still at work in this world. That's why we're not consumed with God. We read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we learn about how Jesus came to us, and we learn about what he did. But then we get to the book of Acts, and we say, now this is what we do. And we think that Jesus' work is done, now it's on us to complete the mission. It's on us to do all this work. 
And what Eugene Peterson says is actually, no, not at all. The whole book of Acts is not showing us that Jesus is done working. The whole book of Acts is showing us that Jesus is continuing his work through the church, which is even more miraculous because look around. We ain't that awesome. (laughs) But God is at work amongst us. He's at work amongst us ragamuffins, us motley crew. You know, he's just working here with us, us normal people. God is in our midst. And when you realize that, you'll be consumed with him. You see, the problem is, is a lot of times we think that Jesus is something of the past, not something of the present. And what Eugene Peterson argues for in his book is he says, we need a paradigm shift. And he, he equates it to, the, you know, throughout history, most of the world for a long time thought that the sun rotated around the earth. And we had this kind of like focus like, okay, well, we see the sun rise and we see it go down. And so we, just, we know that the sun must go around us. But the issue was is the earth was at the center. And he says, you need a paradigm shift. Galileo came on the scene and he said, actually, it's the earth that rotates around the sun. The sun is at the center. And you see, that's what the church needs. That's what we need, living stones. We need to realize we're not at the center of this thing. We look around and we see the work that we do and we praise God, but it's not us doing the work. God is at the center of it. As long as we are at the center, we're never going to be consumed with God. But once God is at the center and we see that Christ is at the center and he's still working and everything we do, all of our life and breath is in him, then we become consumed with God because every moment, every breath becomes a holy moment. God is with us. He is here. He is working. The devil's trying to hide that fact, but he is here. And when you realize that, you are consumed with God. And you can preach all night long. All night. And that's what it's going to take. You, you know, you may be in here and you're not a Christian and you're tired of Christians coming up to you, but you look at their life and you know that Jesus is just an add-on to their life. That's not what it's meant to be. We are meant to be just consumed with the presence of Christ. And so church, let's be that together. And if you're not a Christian, know that that offer is also extended to you. Living for you is a pitiful thing to live for. And you may be wondering, can the God of the universe do something awesome through normal me? And I say, yes, he can. Look at the people he chose to be his disciples. The cussing fishermen, the gangsters, the prostitutes, the social rejects, the people possessed by demons whom he delivered. Those are the people that Jesus chose and he wants to choose you too. So Paul was consumed, and this is our invitation also. Secondly, Paul was resolved to lead with presence, humility, and courageous truth. Now, if you're taking notes, you want to write those three things down. Presence, humility, and courageous truth. Those were the marks of his leadership. Continuing on in the passage, verses 13 through 16 kind of tells of his continuing journey. He ends up on his way back home, passing Ephesus because he has a lot of friends in Ephesus and he wants to make it back to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost. And he knows that if he goes to Ephesus, he's gonna get hung up there. So he goes to Miletus and then he sends for the elders of Ephesus, the pastors, to come and visit him so he can uh, share one final farewell with them. And that's what we get in the rest of the passage, verse 17. So he's in the city of Miletus. 
Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of the repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among you whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So here we have Paul addressing this group of pastors. So just picture in your mind, there's a group of maybe 20 pastors, 20 guys in the room, and Paul is just speaking to them. Paul loves these guys dearly. He's been with them for three years, ministering with them day and night with tears, he says. And he shares with them the things that he did in his leadership so that they might go back to Ephesus and lead in the same way. And so as we're listening to Paul talk about how he led, as Christians, we should be looking at this and saying, okay, that's what I need to do in my neighborhood, with my family, and at my workplace. And he says, highlights three things. He led in presence, humility, and courageous truth. So first of all, presence. Look at verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time for the first day that I set foot in Asia. He lived among them. He didn't live on the outside of town and then come in and preach the gospel and say, y'all sinners, I need to get out of here. He came in and he lived among them. He worked among them. You know why? Because if you want to be heard, you have to be willing to hear. If you want to speak the gospel, you can't speak it at people. You have to speak it to their heart. And that can only happen with presence. With presence. Okay, so he get led with presence. Secondly, he led with humility. Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And what he's referring to is, is two things. Number one, he's referring to how every day, in the middle of the day, he rented out of school. It was over 100 degrees probably, and he would preach and teach for an hour. And, and I mean, that's kind of a humble thing to do for an apostle. He'd preach for over an hour, set up, answer questions. Um, He maintained a job during this whole time. He didn't take money from them. He worked while he was trying to get this church started. You can see that in verse 33 if you flip over. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And you yourselves know that with these hands, I ministered to my necessities to those who are with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. So Paul was working while he was planning this church. He was a tent maker. Like right now you go to Shields and you can buy like an Ozark tent or a Marmot tent. You know, you could buy back then the Apostle Paul tent. You know, it's probably a good tent. And what he's saying is, I, I didn't come to the city looking to see what I could get. I came to the city looking to see what I could give. And that's what he highlights. Jesus says, this is why, this is why we need to have jobs. 
This is why we need to work. Because it's more blessed to give than receive. Translation, you'll be more happier as a giver than a taker. It's more blessed to give than receive. And Paul's saying, I had this humble posture amongst you that I was looking to give, 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 serve, serve, serve. I wasn't looking to take, take, take. Because he was satisfied in what God had already given him. So he had humility. And then lastly, he had courageous truth. He had courageous truth. Look at verse 20. He said, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. In other words, when threats started to arrive, he's like, I didn't shrink back. I stood up and spoke. I stood up and spoke. And the message that he spoke in verse 21 is this, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's message. That was Paul's truth. Repentance towards faith in Jesus Christ. God has come to be with us. Paul's truth wasn't moral fixing, moral reform. His truth was Jesus Christ. And think about the life of Christ for a moment. All of humanity has been running from God since birth. But God in his love for us took on flesh. Jesus took on flesh and came to live amongst us. He came to us vulnerable as a baby. That makes me have a lot of comfort because sometimes I feel super vulnerable in this chaotic world. He walked in our shoes. He, he grew up for 30 years in obscurity. You know why? Because most of us grow up in obscurity. Living in our shoes. Every temptation that we faced and fell, he faced and conquered. And knowing that we would never be able to account for our sins, he went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins. Personally, thinking of all the things that you have done and all the things that have been done to you. And he bore them on himself as he hung there on the cross. And he took the wrath of God. And he was forsaken by God so that through faith in him we could be accepted by God. And then he went into death, the one thing that none of us can conquer on our own. But then he conquered death in his resurrection. And then he ascended bodily up to heaven where he still sits bodily. Because bodily, humans can now be with the living God. Which was previously impossible because of our sin. Jesus did this for us. And so you know what it means for you? In Christ, you can actually know the creator of the universe. You can know him. Not just about him. You can know him. In Christ, you can be forgiven. In Christ, your shame can be taken away. You can be cleansed. In Christ, you are wanted. You have dignity. You have value. He wanted to die for you. You belong. It's a thing that we all want. We do some silly things sometimes just to try to belong. You don't have to do that anymore because you can belong to the living God. He is with us. And then he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He gave us his spirit. This is the message of Paul. And he says that he was preaching Jesus and asking them to turn in repentance to faith in Christ. And repentance just simply means a word of, of doing a 180 with your thinking and with your life. Like a couple weeks ago, I was fishing and I took my kids fishing and my daughter, I said, hey, we're gonna go up this hill. And my, my daughter said to me, cause she's a little sassy. No, I'm gonna do this hill. I said, okay. So Penny goes up the hill. And she realized real quickly that she can't do it. And the only thing she said to me is, Daddy, she just turned and jumped into my arms. <laughs> That's a good picture of what repentance is. It's realizing that our way is not the best way. It's realizing that even if we try to do God's way on our own, we never can. And it's turning and jumping into the arms of Christ. This extension is given to all of you. And look, you do not belong to God, unfortunately, unless you belong to Christ. 
So come to Christ. Choose Christ today, and you can belong to him. And this was Paul's message. And he says, uh, continuing on, if you flip the page, he, he says that, therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of you all. As he's speaking this courageous truth, he says, I'm innocent. I got a clear conscience of the blood of you all. And what he's referring to is a, a time in Ezekiel when Ezekiel says that those who hold the truth of God are like the watchmen of a city. If the watchman of a city is sitting on the edge of a city and he sees an army attacking and says nothing, the blood of the city is on his hands. But if the watchman gets up and says, wrath is coming, we need to do something so that we can have salvation, then the blood is on the city's hands. And what Paul is saying is this. He said, I told you guys about the impending wrath of God. I told you that God has offered his son Jesus to, to face that wrath for us. And he says, I have a clear conscience. And it's a good question we should ask all of ourselves. Do you have a clear conscience in regards to the gospel with all of your neighbors? Do you have a clear conscience in regards to the gospel with your family, with your friends? Are you speaking courageous truth? You see, Paul has these three elements. Humility, presence, courageous truth. And those, you need all three of those things to minister in the likeness of Christ. To, to really lead. Because if you take one of those away, it all falls apart. For instance, if you have uh, presence and humility, but you lack courageous truth, you're just a nice person. But nobody will ever believe in Christ. Paul says, salvation comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How can anybody believe in him whom they have not heard? Okay, secondly, if you have uh, humility and courageous truth, but no presence, you're just speaking at people, not to them. You're just flying over and dropping your little gospel truth, maybe throwing tracks at them or leaving them on the mirror or by the stall in the bathroom, but you're not speaking to their hearts. And then lastly, if you have presence and courageous truth, but no humility, you're just a jerk. You're just a bully. You're forgetting that you're, you're just trying to pound the Bible into people's hearts and minds, forgetting that it's the Holy Spirit who has to open up their hearts. And you're also forgetting that the grace you preach is the grace you need. And the grace we need, that's why Paul was able to approach with humility, is because he knew that the, the message he was speaking, he needed just as much, perhaps even more, than anybody he was speaking to. You see, I think a good story of this is a guy named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the 1800s. And Hudson Taylor went there and he was from England. And he initially got frustrated because all the missionaries in China just hung out in the coastal cities. Because that's where they could get the money from their donors. And that's where they could get kind of popularity amongst each other. And Hudson Taylor got frustrated with that because nobody was taking the message of Jesus inland to China. So he said, I'm going to take it inland. But when he went there, he started taking it inland, but he still wore his English apparel. He still had like a sports coat and a suit. And when he would walk into cities or to these little villages in China, he wasn't well received, even though he was a medical doctor and he was trying to help. He wasn't well received. And the reason why he wasn't well received is because they, they thought he looked like a black devil. <laughs> so they called him the black devil and just ran from him. <laughs> and he realized that he needed to humble himself. And he realized that the mission of God is not to change culture to be like European culture. The mission of God is to bring Christ into all cultures. 
And so he started, what he did is he, he, he denied any outsource of income so that he could work among the people. And then he also stopped wearing his suits and he started wearing the traditional Chinese garb. And he shaved his head and he grew a sweet ponytail. And he grew a long scraggly beard. And uh, he wore one of those like little funny hats. And you can see pictures of this online. And the big idea is he realized that he had to humble himself to be amongst the people if he was going to have any chance in, in presenting the gospel to them. It was a good example. And because of him, because of his humbling in doing that, his ministry, while he was alive, I believe, accounted for 18,000 baptisms. But it took a humbling. It took courage. It took courageous truth. And it took presence. Now, he was only following in the footsteps of Paul who's only following in the footsteps of our good Lord Jesus, right? <laughs> Is there anybody who you could say gave up more to be present with us than our Lord in heaven? I mean, he was sitting in heaven, worshiped by angels all day, and he got off his throne to be God with us as a baby, as a child, as an adult. Is there anybody that had more humility than Christ? To forsake the riches of heaven, to be killed naked without anything on a cross? And is there anybody who's had more courageous truth than our good Lord Jesus? While everybody else abandoned him, he stood for God. And he continued to proclaim the gospel even as they put nails through his hands. This is what we're called to. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as we do that, revivals happen. But we need all three of those things. We need to be resolved to lead in presence, humility, and courageous truth. And then we get to our last point, the third point for today. And what we see is that Paul was resolved to lead as an appointed shepherd of God's flock. He's speaking to pastors here. And he says this in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he calls the the pastors, he calls them shepherds, the overseers, he calls them shepherds. And he says, you guys are shepherds appointed by God, the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, like, this is a divine calling. And so for those of you in this room who are pastors of this church, or we have like Pastor Jason from the Reno Church here today, you are called by God to this calling. This is not your choice, (laughs) This is God's appointment. For those of you who want to be pastors someday, know that it is a holy calling. But now let's extend it to all of us as Christians. For all of us as Christians, every person that we meet, God directs our steps. Man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, the Proverbs tell us. Which means this, every person you come in contact with as a Christian is a holy moment. It's a a Holy Spirit-guided moment in which God is calling you to be a sort of shepherd. And it says that, uh, think about this. The first thing that Paul says is, watch out. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Like, in other words, check yourself before you wreck yourself and everybody else. (laughs) Think about a shepherd taking some sheep through the wilderness right now. If a shepherd neglects to eat or drink water, neglects his own physical health or his own direction, what happens to all the flock? They suffer. So it's imperative that all of us, as we're seeking to lead and care for other people in whatever capacity it may be, we are also taking a good look at our own hearts because there's many things that can make us spiritually dehydrated 
Many things that can make us sick and it can lead to the destruction of many. But also, as these people would have heard this, these elders would have heard, they would have approached it with an Eastern uh, collectivistic mindset where they would have heard it collectively. In other words, they would have heard not just, hey, watch yourself as an individual. They would have heard, watch out for y'all. Watch each other's back. Pay careful attention because sometimes you can't see what's wrong with you. You need somebody else to point it out. The Proverbs say, blessed are the wounds of a friend, but shameful are the kisses of an enemy. We need to be watching out for each other. We need to be looking out for each other's back because it's for the good of the whole flock. It's for the good of all those who were purchased by the blood of Jesus. And that's what Paul says. He says here, by the way, remember that this is the church of God whom he bought with his own blood. Like, Jesus really cares for his people. He bought us with his blood. He bought us with his blood. And if you're thinking of, if, if you're a shepherd and you're out there leading a flock, I mean, if it's your sheep, you might kind of be like, eh, whatever, I'll just kind of let that one go straight. I don't like that one anyways, you know. But if it's the king's sheep, you would never do that. If it's the king's sheep and you had to account for all those sheep, you would never do that because you knew he cared. Somebody far greater than you cared for that flock. And that's how it is with us in Christ. And therefore, we need to be willing to lay down our lives. Jesus even says in John 10, he said, there's two types of people in this world. There's shepherds and there's hirelings. Shepherds are willing to lay down their life for the flock, but a hiring flees whenever they see trouble. Because they're like, this is above my pay grade. I'm out. I'm not going to fight wolves. <laughs> and Jesus was referring to himself, but he's also referring to us. And you see, that's why Paul goes into saying, remember that they're bought with his blood. And then he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. He's saying, look, wolves are going to come into the church, even from amongst you. They're going to start preaching false things, taking scripture, but twisting it to mean their own things so that all of a sudden Jesus isn't who he says he is in the Bible. All sorts of things, ranging from you can do whatever you want and God will still love you, or ranging to you have to earn your way for God to love you. Those are false gospels. It is only in Christ that we can receive the love of God. And so wolves are going to rise up and you have to be willing to stand up for the truth of God. But you do it with humility even in the midst of tears, Paul says. But you have to be, the only way that you get there is if you understand that this church, anybody who could potentially believe in Christ, it's not something we made. It's something God purchased. A church is not a place you go. It's a people God made with his own blood. And there's many more in this city who God wants to bring into the church that he died for. Which how cool is it that when Christ was dying on the cross, he was thinking of individuals, faces, names, people in history, us. Now, have you ever borrowed something that wasn't yours that belonged to somebody else that they really loved? How did you treat that thing? Like I've talked about before, like borrowing my father-in-law's truck. I love that truck. So does he. So I'm like driving under the speed limit on the freeway. You guys are honking at me. I know you're honking. I just care more about that truck because I know it's my father-in-law's baby. Or have you ever watched another child and gone and done something fun like gone to the water park or to a lake 
you are freaking out the whole time. Because the thought of, I mean, the thought of like being responsible for losing somebody else's kid, I mean, it causes you to freak out, right? It causes like a sense of heightened awareness, a sense of heightened care. And in a sense, that's what God is calling us to regard as we regard one another. To look at each person as, who's in the church and is a Christian as somebody who's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And to look at each person who's not yet a Christian as somebody who could potentially become a Christian and purchased by the blood of Christ. How would your relationships look if you regarded them as belonging to somebody whom Christ, or belonging to God, whom Christ paid for with his own blood? How would all your relationships change? I bet you wouldn't write people off. I bet you would have a lot more care. I bet you would be a lot gentler and also more truthful at the same time. This is what we're called to be. We're not called to be hirelings. Now, the original disciples, they didn't get this concept at first. Now, if you're new to the Bible, what you need to know is Jesus came to this earth. He started a movement, but he called 12 disciples to himself. And he did many miracles in their presence and taught in their presence. And they started to say he was God and believed that he was the Messiah. But their understanding of Jesus was that Jesus was useful to their purposes. I mean, what was the one thing that they got constantly in trouble for arguing about? Do you guys remember? Which one of them was the greatest? Like Jesus just feeds 20,000 people with a little kid's lunchbox and then they're arguing about which one's the greatest of them. Why? Because their understanding of Jesus was to make them great. They had a self-centered understanding of who Christ really was. They had, to them, Jesus was useful. Maybe even you could say therapeutic. An add-on to their life. And they turned out with that kind of thinking to be hirelings because when Jesus really was betrayed and he was condemned, what happened to each one of those apostles? They bounced. They scattered. They ran for their lives because all of a sudden a man being arrested is not going to bring them glory. It was going to bring them death. And so they ran for their lives and Jesus was condemned alone. And when he was killed on the cross, there was very few people around him. And his disciples watched from afar. But then after Jesus went to the grave and resurrected, after the disciples saw the blood of Christ, Jesus visited them and he kept holes in his hands and holes in his feet because he wanted to remind them, look, I shed blood for you guys and I'm giving you guys another chance at this. And I'm sending you out again. And then what we see in the book of Acts is completely different disciples, don't we? We see them rising up, Peter getting beaten in Acts chapter 4 and rejoicing and singing a song about it. Every one of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death except for John. What gives? What was the change? Here's what the change was. They saw the blood of Christ. They realized that Jesus was purchasing the church with his own blood. The blood of Christ struck their hearts. And listen to me for a moment. It's not... Jesus will only be useful to you if you view him as somebody who's trying to make you great or to fix your life. But once the blood of Jesus strikes your heart, he goes from being useful to beautiful. And then you become consumed with him. And then you can't stop talking about him. 
And then you're willing to be resolved in all situations to lead people to him because he's just that beautiful. And that's what we're called to believe. And so, church, the question for us is, what would it look like for us to regard all people as if they could potentially be purchased by the blood of Christ? It would change our relationships. And how is it that we go from seeing Christ as merely useful to being the center of all? And the answer to that is God has to open up our hearts. And so that's what we're going to pray for right now. And if you're not a Christian in here, you might be like, I want to see Jesus like that, but I don't know if I believe. You need to ask God if you're real. Show me that this is legitimate and make the blood of Christ enter into my heart. And if you've been a Christian for a long time and you're kind of like this whole Jesus thing is just this thing you do kind of rhythmically, but it's not capturing your heart anymore, this prayer you need to pray earnestly for your soul that the blood of Christ would strike your heart this morning. Amen?